Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Alexandra. Hi. Thank you for joining me today, Alex. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're from, where are you coming to us from, all of that? Yeah, I live in Victoria, BC, Canada. So, whole other side of the world. Um, I'm 25. I'm currently a master's student right now writing my dissertation. And I've just recently kind of gotten into some local advocacy and really started to own my own story. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that as well. I found for myself, having my own personal story out there and starting to be an advocate really helped me on my healing journey, um, coming to terms with things, meeting different survivors. What's that experience been like for you? Yeah. So I really just started, I guess you could say coming out publicly. Like I told friends, you know, I'd, I'd post some things on social media, like resharing things, um, just around, you know, education and awareness of sexual assault. And a couple months ago, I spoke at a rally that we had um, after some allegations came out about a local uh, bartender taking advantage of several women here. And I spoke about my story, my journey, how long it took me to kind of come to terms with things. And since then, I've been on the news, like not really going into my own story, but advocating for other people. And I've shared on social media the details of my story. I you know, faced a, a bit of backlash, uh, but it's been really healing and also empowering. I never thought something so horrible could feel empowering. What was the backlash that you experienced? What was, what was that like? Yeah, so I shared my story uh, originally anonymously um, online, and I had named the person who assaulted me. And, you know, obviously there's people that are going to come to the defense and whatnot, but um, this person decided, you know, they were going to go after the account that had shared my story and even went so far as to share personal screenshots of our uh, messages from 
three years ago or three and a half years ago now, I guess, um, you know, and was circling things where I was saying, you know, it's both our fault and uh, like, can I get a ride home and, and things after the fact, which I found out was a fawning response mm-hmm. and posted this long story about his version of events and um, basically kind of ended the post saying, why would a rape victim say these things? And yeah, you know, he, he shared it to his private social media. I don't know if it's gone any farther than that. I found out not too long ago. You know, it, it was a really weird time for me, but I think in going through that, I've honestly just stopped giving so many fucks. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Like, okay, hon, yeah, share your story. Fuck you. I love that. It's um, it's a really daunting thing and everything to come out publicly. And I'll be honest, like, uh, there's still a part of me that has fear that somebody's like, the, the man with the clipboard's kind of going to come and be like, you know, defamation (laughs) but well totally that was the whole experience right like at first this person was messaging the account saying you know this is defamation um you know i'm gonna go after you whatnot and of course they're like well it's only defamation if it's false um and you know that's what he thought he had sweet evidence of um in my opinion i think people who actually understand how trauma works would be more likely to say, Hey, you know what? There's probably a lot more to this. Some of the things around the assault, for example, uh, he had a girlfriend at the time Yeah, and, um, I was inebriated. So that was a lot of me saying, well, it's both our faults. Like, you know, do whatever you can. Like, I just, I felt like I was this horrible person. And of course, for so long, I really maintained that. And I, I told myself and I told friends that I was like a homewrecker um, a bunch of other like really nasty words. <laughs> and I believed that for so long and thought yeah. I was just a disgusting person. So I think that was really hard for me to kind of come to terms with and be like, you know what, this actually something like something bad happened to me. And actually giving yourself that space. So mm-hmm. I think I remember I got legal advice to this podcast and, you know, it's very different here in Victoria, in Australia. Um, there was and still kind of is an actual law. Um, there was a campaign called the Let Us Speak campaign um, because we weren't as sexual assault survivors allowed to actually come forward and say what had happened to us publicly without mm-hmm. a court order, even if there had been a conviction. Wow. So basically it's called the gag law and they're trying to, I think they've gone back on it now. There was like an intermediary thing that's basically said, nobody's going to get charged with it. But the legal Mm -hmm. advice around defamation and things that I've had is you can say something in your opinion. So you can say, in my opinion, this person did this and you can name them publicly. But in the case of a court case for somebody in Australia or in this state in Australia, you can't give even if they've been charged and found guilty, you can't name them. You can't give them any kind of geographical indicators or things like that. So for me sharing my story, there is a little bit of fear there, but I'm kind of at the point, like you just said, where I give zero fucks. Like I own the fact that this happened to me and I feel empowered to speak Mm -hmm. out about it. And I know that coming out publicly for a lot of people isn't something that they think will help them or will work for them. And we don't tell people that that's what they should do. But I think having other voices in public speaking out loud about everything. So your experience, my experience, 
every other survivor's experience that's happy to say it, somebody else is going to listen to that and relate to that and know that they're not alone and know that it's okay. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, really Yeah, I felt like with my story, I, you know, I never, even once I did realize that what happened was assault, I was like, well, I don't remember a lot of it. I might've been unconscious. I was throwing up, you know, I went back to his place with him thinking there was this after party. So I know how (laughs) hard it is. You know, I, I haven't been through the court system, but seeing the stories that come out, seeing how grueling that is for any victim of crime to go through and have them be, you know, questioned, um, Mm. about their integrity, about things that, you know, literally cannot cause sexual assault. (laughs) It's only ever someone's poor behavior, harmful behavior that causes assault. Um, so for me, you know, I was like, I I don't want to ever go through that. And at this point in my, uh, healing journey, like three and a half years later, I don't see how that would bring me any more closure. So that's why I'm like, I'm going to share it. But obviously at first that, that real threat of um, him coming after me, because, you know, when I shared my story anonymously, my name wasn't attached to it originally. And he shared my photo and my name. Um, And there were a lot of people that I knew that, you know, supported him and liked that post. And I was terrified, you know, the, of people's opinions, but as it kind of went on, I was just like, well, you know what, if you really, really want to go to court for this, fine, (laughs) let's do it. You know, even if I'm not going to, if they're not going to believe it it is what it is. I think the support we have now with more survivors coming out that part of me is a little scared of, you know, people coming after me, suing me, whatever. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't think the risks do not outweigh the benefit of me being able to speak publicly. Like I have not publicly named him. It was only ever anonymously. And then he kind of identified me, but I, I don't do it because I just, it's not worth going to court. Um, which is really unfortunate that that's a reality for most. Yeah. And I speak to a lot of survivors and I think some, a lot of people have said to me that they feel guilty about the fact that they don't, want to go to court over this. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think each person's healing journey is their own healing journey. Um, And if you choose to, you choose to, if you don't, you don't. Um, I always encourage people to, you know, if, if you've made a statement to me and I'm the first person you've ever spoken to about it, that I would write down notes, um, Mm -hmm. date, time, geographic locations, different bits and pieces like that. Because if you ever chose to go forward, I would have some evidence to back you up same as if it's just happened in the last day or two, going and getting a medical exam while it is not the most lovely thing. Um, I personally didn't feel re-traumatized when that happened to me. I personally felt very loved and cared for. Um, It's uncomfortable, but I mean, as a woman, I've had that many uncomfortable medical exams anyway. (laughs) It wasn't, it was awkward, but it was, it was what it was. Um, So I always encourage those steps if you ever want to, just to give yourself the option and the choice. But for me as well, you need to have the knowledge that that's not the end goal for everybody. And it's important for me for other survivors to know that them just telling one friend might be the only step that they need to take for them to go and start and be okay. I do have a question for you. Um, Oh, yeah. 
With the sociology and everything that you do, something mm-hmm. I've personally been thinking a lot about is, you know, I always say victim survivor or survivors of, and I wonder how limiting the labeling of a person as a survivor could potentially be to them feeling like they could come forward. Um, whether we were to rephrase it, for example, into somebody who has experienced a sexual mm-hmm. experience that was not completely consensual or something like that might be more inclusive. I feel like a lot of survivors um, don't think that they are. I have a lot of people saying to me, you know, theirs wasn't as bad as mine or they don't identify with being a survivor because they didn't go through that movie level trauma afterwards of, you know, breaking down and detaching Mm -hmm. from anxiety and stuff like that. So what do you think about that? I mean, it's just a word I know, but I think words are important and the language that we use is important. And it's just been something in the back of my mind of like whether survivor is the best term to use, especially for people who are coming to terms with what they've gone through recently. Yeah, I think using a survivor victim term, I think there's a, there's an importance for both. Um, you know, for me, I definitely agree. Like at first, I just kind of denied that at all. Like I looked back, you know, after everything kind of, blew up when I came out a bit more publicly with my story, I went back and looked at old text messages with my friends and I'm saying, you know, why is blackout? I don't remember like this happened. It's, it's fine though. Right. And so for so long, I was telling myself what happened. That was just, that was normal. So obviously it took me a really long time to even address what had happened. And after that, to me, it, it was just survivor. That's what I felt comfortable with. Some people feel better with victim. I think victim is very important because, especially in showing that a crime was committed. Um, so, for you know, that can also be very healing. I mean, like, yes, I was a victim of sexual assault or sexual harassment or sexual abuse. Um, I think that's important too in just the first kind of stage of recognizing. But moving forward, I, I personally like Survivor because it's empowering. It's showing that you've lived and you're thriving after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's definitely interesting because I've had friends tell me about sexual harassment. And, you know, especially there's these this idea that if you're in a relationship um, or if you like were drunk, that it's not assault or if you weren't you know, physically abused, um, or, you know, bleeding or hurt on, you know, or visibly looking like you were hurt, that it didn't happen to you. Um, but if, if someone took advantage of you without your permission, like you are a survivor and you don't have to identify as such, you don't have to come out as such because obviously some people do not understand the, um, the scope of sexual assault and that it's not always, like you said, that movie scene. Um, so I think it's, it's hard for survivors to kind of come out and really own that, but, um, they both terms definitely have a a time and place. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think victim survivor is important. I think victim only, um, doesn't indicate healing, but, the absence of victim on occasions, I think, removes the fact that you're right, something bad has happened. So I think Mm -hmm. both of them together coupled is good. Um, 
But I also, yeah, think that I need to, you know, personally, or we as survivors need to do a bit around the education for other people who are like, you know, even just openly saying, even if you don't identify as a survivor and putting that out there and saying, however, you have gone through something that was of a misconduct type Mm-hmm. Um, anything or you know somebody might have hurt you or taken advantage of you or you know any of those things while you were asleep and you might still be with them there might be a partner that you love very much but they've done something to violate you and these are all in- things that stop people from healing and stop people from going through things but it's important for us to talk about it because not yeah not everybody goes through the same experience and I'm very cognizant of the fact that um recently that survivor might not be as inclusive as I had thought (laughs) yeah I think there's yeah definitely especially for those that just they don't feel like they um I guess you could say qualify for that term I think making it known that you know any kind of assault any kind of um sexual experience uh misconduct that um was done to you without your permission, you are entitled to all of these resources. And we definitely have to talk more about um, the different types and the different violations, I guess, um, onto your autonomy, because those are important. And it, it shapes the way you think. So if we can increase the education, especially like understanding consent is a big one, you know, it's not just a yes or no, like it's, it needs to be comprehensive. There's certain things like that. You, even if you say yes, you legally can't say yes. And a no isn't always just a no. It's like when you're kind of uncomfortable, you're pulling back. Like those things are really important to get out in the world. So people start understanding that, you know, when something bad is happening to them, that there's resources and there's people to talk to. Yeah, definitely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there around consent because I want to walk away from the terminology yes means yes, no means no, because Mm -hmm. it gives the indication that somebody could get a yes. So somebody might force you to say yes. Somebody might coerce you to say yes. Somebody, you might say yes. And I think in a lot of situations, the absence of fighting back is not consent. The absence Mm -hmm. of a no is not consent. Saying yes doesn't always mean consent because have you coerced, manipulated, threatened um, anything, somebody into that? Have you, you know, are you in a relationship? You've been in a relationship for 25 years. You know, you're the wife and you're saying, I don't want to have sex. And he's saying, please, babe, please. And begging Mm -hmm. you, trying to manipulate you into doing something you do not want to do. That is not consent. So it's important for me, you know, that you've got, environmental factors, you've got social cues, you've got language. These are all things that come into what consent is. And so many people have made these jokes about getting out a notoriety, you know, notarizing a stamp and saying, you know, that we've got a contract. We don't, the absence of, the absence of yes also doesn't mean that there's not consent there. Environmental Mm -hmm. with people's behaviors, you know, you know, I want to move towards this enthusiasm, enthusiastic consent, you know, and people are afraid to, or some people I've spoken to are afraid to ask if they are happy to continue because they don't want them to say no, which people need to really think about. When you're saying that, you're saying that out loud, you're saying that to a survivor of sexual assault, 
comfortably that you're worried that the person you're going to enter into a sexual act with might say no if you give them the opportunity to do so. So these are all mm-hmm. things around respecting somebody's sexual areas, sexual autonomy, also the comprehensive understanding that it's not limited to one or two words, that consent can happen without the word yes. Consent can be very physical. You can be very, you know, enthusiastic towards Mm -hmm. consent without needing to say yes, and that is consent. You can also say yes and it be coerced or manipulated, which is not. So that's important for me that we we redirect the language around the way that we speak about consent um, because we're giving people a false narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, personally, following what I co- kind of have called like the initial assault, um, you know, because I, I remember right after that going home and like lying on my bathroom floor and crying, but I just, I talked myself out of it. I talked myself out of that idea that what happened was wrong and subsequent relationships. I, you know, I didn't care about my safety anymore. I felt like I had no right to, you know, be enjoying myself that, you know, anyone that if if we got to a certain point, then I was like, okay, you know, there were multiple times afterwards where I'd be having sex with a partner and I would be crying like not, I'd try really hard to hide it though, because I didn't want to offend someone because I felt like if I said yes at the beginning, that was it. It was the end all be all. And I think it's like you said, like, it's really important, um, to check in and to be paying attention to body language because you don't have to, you don't have to sit there and like shake someone's hand and be like, would you like to have sex? And they say, yes. Okay. And then every single act, you're like, I need a verbal yes. And I think that also scares, um, probably a lot of, uh, young men, especially in the me too movement, because they're like really scared. And I think if you have to think back and you're like, I don't know if I got consent, chances are you didn't. And you need to actively be paying attention to your partner. Like sex isn't a one-sided thing. There's two people involved, maybe even more. And you need to be making sure that the other person's enjoying themselves. If they're pulling back or wincing, they're not, they want to stop or you need a break, or maybe you need to verbally check in. But also, you know, if you're having sex and someone is like clearly excited and, you know, moving things along, then that's a yes. I think the, the black and white idea of it and the absence of talking about how you can be co- like, if you're coerced into saying yes, or if you've been drinking and you're heavily intoxicated, yes. Or if you're not of legal age and you're with a partner that is that yes is not valid. So it's really important. We get away from the binary of yes and no. And we look at it as an ongoing practice Yes. Something that can be removed at any time. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. within a partnership, within a sexual act, you know, a lot of, you know, we use men and women as, as the example here, because, you know, I think a 1920 study from the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing was 97% of offenders were men. So I think it's important that we're we're talking about the, the overwhelming majority. However, that doesn't take away from any of the other statistics. We all know that, but in these situations as well, 
for women um, who are taught from the moment that we're young, that we're caregivers, that, you know, we, we deliver different types of things, you know, we're the ones that are supposed to change men to make men better. Mm -hmm. We do the housework. We're the caring, loving ones. Um, We're the passive ones. We're taught that as children. So it's important to give the power back to the women and say, you know, if you are in a sexual act with somebody, you have the power to say, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to continue this act anymore. Not that way or something like that. And, and own your voice too, because I think we get caught up in trying to please everybody all of the time that when it's not what we actually want, we're, we're still obliging. However, we might have wanted it at the beginning, but now we're in a situation where we don't want it anymore. We feel like we can't say no. Mm-hmm. So I think it goes yeah. two ways with empowerment as well. Yeah. I mean, especially when we, we look at the overwhelming majority um, of survivors being women, I think it's important, but it, it also, it scares away, I think, um, young men from coming forward too, because they feel like they're not going to be believed. So really being inclusive of when we talk about it and not saying that it's, you know, the man's responsibility to ask, you know, it's both people need to be checking in with one another. And that's very important. I think also, um, when you think of, you know, if a yes means a yes, and there's like, you're mentioning briefly about people pleasers, you know, just because someone else wants something doesn't mean you have to give it to them. Um, if you're not enjoying yourself, like you have every way, right to walk away and say no. Yeah. And I think there's that fear as well, because, you know, as a woman, you know, I think you probably had the same experience where I'm at a bar or something and a guy comes up to me and he wants my number. He wants to text me. He wants something from me. And I've said, no, or I've lied and said, sorry, I've got a boyfriend or I've lied and said, sorry, I'm mm-hmm. gay. Um, where I've done so many different things because I'm too afraid to just say, I don't want that because in my experience, the moment that I've rejected a lot of men, even in a very kind way, I'm met with aggression and anger where they call me yeah. a slut. They go to like intimidate me, you know, with their body mm-hmm. or, um, they call, they'll like say something like you're fucking ugly anyway. Um, and yeah. these are things that happen to so many women. So when you translate that life experience into the bedroom, into a sexual act, you know, the, there is another added fear there that by saying that you might be met with aggression, you might be met with anger. And it is something that, you know, everybody's experience feeds into who they are in their life. And if this is your overwhelming experience with men, then, you know, speaking out and saying how you feel and not saying that you enjoy something could be a really big deal for a lot of people. Yeah. I think especially, yeah, you think of the nature and nurture of things and how you're brought up and how women are taught to be so apologetic you know, I had exact same experiences. Uh, when I first, when I was of legal age, which is 19 here in uh, BC, um, I started working at a bar and so I would be sober and I would be serving people who were, you know, intoxicated and all the time I get hit on and all the time I, I, at first I would make up these lies saying, Oh, I have a partner or yeah, like I'm gay or something. Cause at the time I didn't realize that I was pansexual, but, um, you know, I would tell people these different things to kind of let them down easy. 
because I didn't want this horrible reaction because all the time that's what I got because most of the time these men are raised and they're very entitled. Um, so it's something that we've, I think as women, um, and you know, and minorities in general have just been kind of like silenced and feel like they have to minimize themselves and not so that they don't, um, alarm or spark something in someone else, which is, it's really sad. And we want to change that, that every voice equally should be heard. And, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what you said that let them down easy is such an Mm -hmm. interesting thing because, you know, it's just the way that you're risk managing yourself and you know that this is the best way that you can go forward with having safety in mind, which is something that I think a lot of men um, specifically don't understand when they turn around and they're like, why are you still being nice to this guy that's messaging you being an asshole? Why are you still doing this? And it's like, I'm genuinely frightened that if I tell him to fuck Mm -hmm. off or anything like that, that the retaliation I will get is physical. And I know that I can't defend myself against him. So that's the fear. I think there as well, where you try to be polite, you try to be nice. And then you also get labeled as a cock tease or somebody who's leading somebody on. And you're like, I don't know what to do. This is what I've risk assessed myself as in a Mm -hmm. way for me to safely exit this situation. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think it's also important just to, you know, on the same topic, when you think of people, the response to trauma and you look at freezing and fawning, you know, it's because they're scared something bad is happening and they don't want to invoke anything in the person. So, you know, in, in my experience, the first sexual assault, um, because they're after the fact, um, that first one, I, I remember a little bit of it and I felt like I couldn't do anything, you know? So for me, um, you know, the circumstances around it, um, we got back to his place and I went and I was throwing up in the bathroom to which is something he denies. Um, (laughs) you know, it's always two sides to a story, I guess. And the next thing I remember is I like the room right beside the bathroom was his bedroom. And I just, I lied down. I was just lying there because I couldn't walk. Everything was spinning. Um, next thing is he was over top of me saying, well, if you're going to be in my bed, then you can't wear any clothes. I don't remember how my clothes came off. I was just, I was just present at that point. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't have any strength. I was so intoxicated. I was going in and out of consciousness. And, you know, the the next thing I remember is at what point I was just like, can you at least put on a condom? As if I'm like begging with him to try and be safe about what he's doing with me. And he just laughed and just, you know, went at it. And then it kind of all goes to a blur. And the next thing is I'm in a cab on my way home. So I think it's really important for people to understand that they can say no at any point. And, um, that's just not the narrative that we were taught growing up. No. And I think you, you know, thank you for sharing that part of your story. I think, um, you know, these are things to go back to that consent. You Mm -hmm. were so inebriated that you 
could not consent. There's not a point there where you can do that. You're in and out of consciousness. You're not able to provide consent. And the thing that I've spoken to people about as well in terms of giving them an example of when is too drunk to consent Mm -hmm. is when you can visibly see somebody is drunk, but also at the same time, when you think about it, would you be comfortable with a police officer interviewing you as a victim of a crime if they'd had three pints? Would Mm -hmm. you think that they were at... 100% capacity to do their job after three pints, like three beers, let's say. And I think it comes down to that. What you need to understand is that we've got very different expectations on how drunk somebody is. And that's where the enthusiasm comes into it. You Mm -hmm. weren't enthusiastic about it. You were obviously forced into doing something. And then there's that Mm -hmm. second crime of you asking for a condom and them not using one. That's also a secondary act putting you in danger. So it's not okay in any way, but the absence of fighting back is not consent. Yeah, I agree. And unfortunately, because I think in our education system, for one example, we don't talk about, um, healthy relationships and how sex should happen because we're normally taught in most cases it's abstinence based so people don't actually know what sex should look like so if their first experience is something where they're being pressured then chances are they're going to continue to be in these situations and further harm is going to be done to them because they don't recognize what's happening is wrong like for me I remember, you know, growing up and especially once I was working in the bar scene, being around so many people and honestly, a lot of coworkers, even just drinking on the job. And that was normal. They'd go out on a Tuesday after shift at like two 30 and continue drinking and engaging and doing drugs. Um, there'd be all the time. Like I even, I can recall people saying, Oh, I was so blacked out. Like, I, I think I had sex with this person or like we hooked up and it wasn't until that happened to me that I was like, Oh. And unfortunately, because I, I didn't recognize what had happened to me was a crime, was something that I had, you know, tried, you know, because I didn't fight back and I just was present. Um, and I felt like what, what it was, was it, just sorry, <laughs> that it wasn't sexual assault. So long after that, like I had mentioned, I stopped caring um, about my safety. And I just, anytime someone hit on me, I was like, yeah, I guess you're entitled to it. Sure. Like, then further harm happened. I remember, I would say about six months later, um, someone who was in a, someone who was a manager at um, one place of work of mine, um, you know, we were flirting beforehand and my friends knew, but, you know, we kind of kept it hush hush because he was a manager. Yeah. And he was very kinky and wanted to do all these things. And I remember he would send me these really graphic photos. And I was like, I'm not comfortable with that. And all my friends were like, Oh my God, you got to do it. Like, it'll be such a cool experience. And eventually we had sex and at first I consented, but then there were things that happened during that. I just did not want happening. I felt dirty and disgusting after. And I was just like, well, I guess that's an experience and just kind of moved forward. Yeah. And after like, and it really wasn't even until like the last year that I started thinking about all the sexual encounters after the fact and the ripple effect of not understanding what happened was a crime, that it was something that someone assaulted me 
there were so many scenarios afterwards that I just never gave consent, you know, like looking back being like, it's, it's not normal to cry during sex. I remember telling my friend that, and she was like, that's not okay. I was like, it's fine. Like it was over pretty quick. No, yeah, (laughs) that's not okay. And the sad fact is that if you have been victimized and a victim of trauma is that it increases your likelihood of being victimized again. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time offenders are looking for vulnerability, availability, you know, it's not always the prettiest girl in the bar, you know, where they, you know, the, the reasons that people assault people are, there's a plethora of them. And when you are a victim, sometimes you make yourself more vulnerable to becoming a victim because people can tell that you are easier to manipulate or to be malleable to what they want. Um, And it's something that is awful and terrifying. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have said after their assault, they became hypersexual. Yeah. Now I don't doubt that hypersexual, which is an increase in sex drive is something that doesn't exist. I don't, I'm not saying that I'm saying it definitely exists for some survivors, but linking back into what you just said is what I experienced personally. And I think it was masked as being hypersexual, but what it was, was a lack of care for my own personal safety. And I was trying to gain back power that had been taken away from me by putting myself into these really, really risky situations. And it was important for me to call it out as not hypersexual because I think that masks what actually was happening for me personally, which is such a lack of care for my own safety that I was trying to put myself into situations that were very risky. And I was trying to regain control of my life by taking it the step first and going, I'm going to put myself in this situation so that you can't take it from me. Yeah. I, I would say that was very much the similar for me because I remember actually, um, you know, Instagram story highlights, you can only have like so many. And I have one thread that is, um, based on the me too movement. And I, you know, tried to add something that was like, Oh, your story's full. And the first one that was to go, I like went back and it was me sharing like over a year ago, um, about hypersexuality after assault. And I, at the time, yeah, I really thought that way because I was, you know, even though I, I kind of had recognized what happened to me was wrong. I didn't publicly or even tell any friends for so long. Um, so I acted like what happened was consensual because of obviously the ramifications and the, um, the retaliation, the way people paint women, especially when they come out. But um, for me, I thought for so long that I was being, I was hypersexual and that I just wanted to have sex all the time. But when I really thought about it, I was like, no, I wanted to feel like I had the power again. So I would, yeah, I was very, I was more flirtatious. And um, I remember for a little while, I was calling it my hoe phase. Like, and yeah. I was just like, yeah, I guess I was just sleeping with a bunch of people, but the majority of people I was sleeping with, I was ha- like, I was crying or I just mm-hmm. wasn't present. I would just zone out. Um, and I, yeah, you know, that was definitely a more recent realization for me. And I, I agree. Like, I think that is a reality for some people. Um, but for me, it was definitely about taking back that power. And I would I just kind of accepted any sexual scenario that came at me. 
So I think there's different understandings of it. And maybe that's what I experienced, but it definitely didn't feel like at the time I actually wanted to have sex. Yeah, I completely agree and completely understand because that's exactly how I felt as well. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to talk about it with somebody as well that, you know, it's hard to explain to other people what that feeling is like. And yeah. um, I think, you know, healing is a journey. And one of the hardest things for me to come to terms with on my healing journey personally was that I actually have value and pushing up my own boundaries and starting to create them for myself was one of the most confronting things I think I had to do, but I'm so glad that I've done it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's put me into a much more powerful position within myself, but those moments you know, of starting to deal with that and actually look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, what are my behaviors like? What am I doing? Um, that was one of the more confronting ones. Yeah. Um, I agree. Like I, man, I still, I still have problems setting boundaries. (laughs) Um, but that was a huge struggle for me because I just, anytime someone wanted something, I felt like I felt that I had to give it to them. Yeah. I completely understand. So you went through this you know, the first assault. Um, and then you've gone through, through all of this. Um, there was another occasion that something happened to you, wasn't there? Yeah. 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 So about six months later, I, you know, and because the the first one, um, I never had a flirtatious relationship or I never had any intent to have sex with this person. Um, so the second time it happened, I, I just assumed that it was consensual. Um, so we were flirting for about a month or so and we'd see each other at work. And there was this one time that we were, he, he would tell me about how he would want to, you know, lock me in a a closet with him at work. And I was like, anything, I'm not comfortable with that. Like, that's just, I no, you know, not that, cause even now I'm trying to explain it. You don't have to explain it. No, no, it's a no. Um, and I told him several times, I was like, yeah, that's a great fantasy, but that's not something I want to do. And I had actually told my manager about it because we were friends at the time. And I said, please don't leave me alone with him. Right. So I'm in the office with her and he comes in and she kind of gives me this look and is like, I'm going to do a walk around. And I'm just like, I just freeze because I know what he's going to do. And I know like this guy's massive. Um, and I, yeah, she left, he locked the door and he just like, he choked me started making out with me. And then he slapped me across the face so hard that my face was red for about 20 minutes. I went and hid in the bathroom and I texted my coworker to come back because I was like, I can't go out on the floor like this. Um, and she comes back and I, I don't remember exactly what I said to her, but I was just kind of like, Oh my God, this happened. Ah. I was just like, so shocked that it had happened to me. And then after the fact, I still, I still decided to go home with him, not the same night, but later on. And a lot of my friends kind of said to me or quotation air quotes, friends, um, that I had to, at that point, like I had to complete what I had started. Um, so I went home with him and, um, you know, at first I was like, okay, cool. This will be an experience. I thought that after that, um, cause I told him, I was like, yeah, I, I don't want anything to happen at work. And I just kind of joked about it after the fact. So 
when we were having sex and he started doing more things, like I, I just, I was like, I can't say no. Like, I don't want to get slapped. I don't want these things to happen. Yeah. Um, he was very aggressive and not in a way that was enjoyable for me. And, um, yeah, after that, I, I cried as well after he left and I just kind of accepted that I put myself in that scenario. And that's it. You know, it's not just victim blaming for other people blaming you. It's misguided Mm -hmm. friends telling you that something wasn't assault or that you should do something like that. Um, that's gaslighting your feelings and it's, you know, a lot of victim blaming is self blame where you're like, Mm -hmm. I have put myself in this situation. Um, I, you know, and that's where that lack of boundaries and stuff comes into, you know, I'm not going to even create them because somebody's going to break them. Um, but that sounds horrific because especially that physical intimidation where you go, I know that this person could kill me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I never thought of him as a particularly violent person. Um, and there wasn't really this, t- like, in, in this sexting and stuff that was going on before. It, it You know, there was, you know, I'm going to tie you up. Things that I was like, okay, like, that seems interesting. Mm-hmm. But then what actually happened were not things we discussed. And after, you know, he had slapped me at work and I was locked in this room with him, um, after that, I was like, there's no way I can say no to this guy. Yeah. Cause who knows what else he's, he's going to do. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. It's not just the victim blaming after the fact, when you, if you do come out as a survivor or a victim, it's also the way that people invalidate your experience. So for example, um, after the first assault, I started, you know, heavily drinking, um, you know, had that kind of hypersexual experience. And, um, there was this one night that I, and at the time, you know, there was the fentanyl crisis going on here and I was very opposed. I had never tried cocaine. I never wanted to try cocaine. Um, I blacked out. And the next thing I remember is I'm doing the line of cocaine and I like, I freaked out. I locked myself in the bathroom. I tried to throw up cause I, I thought that would work. Um, <laughs> And my friend is like there with me. And I had told her before, because we were going to hang out with these people that all did drugs. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to. And she started yelling at the person because she went went outside to have a smoke. Um, Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And then I, you know, I end up drinking more. And the next thing I remember is I, I wake up in this guy's bed who's someone like someone else from work that was really flirtatious with me. And we had sex a couple times and I wasn't sober for any of them. In most cases, I was blackout drunk. And, you know, a couple months after that initial assault and going through this, um, you know, what at the time I called a phase, um, I, I went to my doctor's office and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I would do this. Um, you know, I'm really scared. Why am I acting out? Like I, I'm scared. Um, and for a bit of background, I've, um, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder when I was 15. Um, so I, I was on medication at the time and I went into my doctor. I was like, the meds aren't working. Right. Um, you know, cause I was so depressed. I was doing all these things and the doctor was like, well, that's just a normal thing for someone in their twenties. And he said, okay, well, um, I'll refer you. And I heard nothing. Um, and then I, and at this time, I guess I'm all over the place, but I started cutting again. And so about a month after that doctor's visit, um, one night I, I was just absolutely beside myself and I was crying. I drove myself and I sat outside the hospital and I was debating on checking myself in. And then I left because I was like, why would, no, I'm fine. I am not physically hurt. I went home and I took more meds than I'm supposed to. And, you know, I I took a few, I started to feel weird and I was like ready to take more. And so I ended up calling 911 and the ambulance came, they checked me in to the psych for the night. And that was an experience in itself. Um, I remember telling the psychiatrist the next morning about what I'd been experiencing, how I hadn't heard anything. I tried calling this person, the psychiatrist I was supposed to see the office. I wasn't getting anything back. And they were just like, yeah, you know, you probably have borderline personality disorder and gave me some meds, referred me to a short term, um, uh, psych program. And I was on my way. And I, you know, the psych program, the new meds, that was a, a whole other journey. Um, cause I hadn't really been talking about sexual assault, but recently I went back and I looked through the notes that the psychiatrist had done cause I got my record and in them was the most haunting thing. Um, the psychiatrist wrote that, um, she seems to be drinking a lot to the point of blacking out and then she'll be having sex while blackout drunk. And I saw that and I was like, how, 
how is a psychiatrist, you hear that and you think that that's consensual. If I'm saying I'm blackout drunk, you know, I had sex with some person, like, isn't that something that you should be checking in on? And, you know, really getting to the bottom of that, especially when I'm saying all these different multiple scenarios where I'm, you know, saying I'm not enjoying myself and all these different things. So for a long time, especially after seeing that, I was just like, how are other people's narratives affecting the way that I see myself? That's exactly right. And that's shocking to hear, even for the fact that borderline personality disorder is a very serious mental health problem that can be Mm -hmm. very harmful and it can be very difficult to live a fulfilling life as somebody with BPD. Um, For that to be, oh, you've probably, you've probably got borderline personality disorder as like a, a throwaway thing. That's a very serious, serious um, thing to be diagnosed with. That is absolutely insane to me, but to have consistent and repeated statements of things that are of a sexual nature that are not being deep dived into and spoken about even in any level is negligent at the least. Yeah. I, um, so uh, the, the program I was in was for seven months. I looked through some of those notes and there were similar things. So they actually gave me the diet. They told, told me I was an alcoholic. And so I did, you know, four months sober, um, the sexual experiences were the same. It didn't matter. I was just drinking to numb what was going on, obviously. And it wasn't until I started seeing my current therapist, um, shout out to Andrea. (laughs) She, the day she met me, she said to me, she's like, I don't think you have BPD. I think you have PTSD. Um, because of all these different things that were happening, going on at the time, um, and I just kind of looked at her and I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. I had, I had just adopted and believed in this narrative and said, yep, I've got BPD. And I started saying, yeah, I have all these wild mood swings. I go through all of this, blah, blah, blah. And I was looking at it so negatively, even though I felt like I was such an advocate for mental health. Um, and it took me probably about a year of seeing my current therapist to really actually like for it to sit with me and be like, yeah, what I experienced and all these other things like that, that was traumatic and it is PTSD because I, I don't know if it's cause I grew up in a military household. Um, so the, my only idea of PTSD were people that had gone to war um, or people that had some like violent crime done to them. But it took so long for me to realize that. And once I did come to terms with the PTSD, a lot of other things shifted for me. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think that's actually quite a common misconception and misdiagnosis is BPD versus um, post-traumatic stress disorder or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. which is alarming. I think with the rates of assault and things that we have in society at the moment, I don't understand why there's not a wider known, you know, treatment program for things like this. It's, you know, I'm so, I'm so glad that you found somebody that helped you to come to terms with who you are and help you with this diagnosis to, to take back the power to a degree. But it is an alarming thing that you can be going through this and that, you know, somebody just looks at you and ticks a box and puts you into this pigeonhole and you're never going to get better because that's not what you have. You know, it's like treating someone with a brain tumor with insulin because you've diagnosed them with um, diabetes. They're completely different things. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, the importance of advocacy in so many ways, it's not just in, you know, the area of healing, it's in the area of trauma recovery and PTSD yeah. is a very serious thing too. And, you know, it doesn't ruin your life. It, it doesn't need to ruin your life, but getting proper treatment for that proper diagnosis is what will help you. Yeah. Um, for me with that initial, initial diagnosis of BPD, um, I was having such a hard time with the different meds. They had put me on a, on an antipsychotic. So I was taking that with my antidepressants and I just felt worse. I felt checked out. I was consistently late for work, um, because I was just sleeping all the time and looking back on those notes, because, you know, the, the short-term psych program that I was in, I understand why it's there, but psychiatrists would come in for 10 minutes at the end of my hour appointment with the counselor and be like, okay, okay. Yeah. We'll stick with these meds and they'd leave. Um, and even with the counselor seeing the notes after it, it was really alarming to me now knowing what I know and seeing how they recounted how I was having all these experiences. And I felt like they weren't appropriate and the way I was talking about them and they were just kind of like, well, yeah, she's acting this way because of BPD and not really digging into the particular uh, scenarios that were happening. Mm. So um, yeah, it, it definitely, the negligence, um, it, I didn't think about that for a long time. And I, I feel very lucky that I found a therapist that was able to help me get better treatment um, and help me understand my symptoms and deal with them in a more appropriate way. Definitely. And I'm so glad for that for you, like that you've actually now started this journey where you can actually mm-hmm. not only work on it, but advocate for it. Um, so going from that and through what you went through, how how are you at this place now? Um, how has that journey been on on coming to a point of, you know, this this stage of your healing journey? Yeah, I think going through it, and once I finally understood what happened was wrong, um, I was able to tell people about it. And nine times out of ten, when I would tell a friend, they would say, "Yeah, I experienced something similar too," which was so terrifying because they were like, and there were some friends that were like, "I have never told anyone." So that to me, I was like, wow, like talking about these things, it, it shouldn't be taboo. You know, we need to speak out. And I didn't really become more public with it per se, or really identify out loud as a survivor until we saw this rise, um, in allegations coming out from this anonymous account online, um, about people in their area. And I was just you know, I, I was sad to see how prevalent it was, even though I knew that I think all women have this understanding that this is a real issue. Um, but it was more about, because it was someone who worked in the service industry, it was about the business's, um, compliance with it and how they handled it. That made me just so enraged. Um, at first they said they suspended the employee and, everyone was furious because there were, there weren't multiple, like we're talking like 20 different stories coming out about this one person. So that's kind of when these protests started and um, why I felt so compelled to talk about my story, because a lot of these stories were women who were drinking and don't remember. And I was like, I'm like, I don't know, you know, that it happens to other people, but when it's so close to you, 
then you, you feel almost this obligation for other people's safety and be like, you know what? I knew that I was in a place where I could talk openly about it. So it's like, maybe if I talk about it, other people who might be really scared to talk about it, they don't have to, they feel like I'm doing that for them for the time being. So, um, I feel really lucky to be at this point in my journey where I can talk about it. Like I, I never told my parents and that was really hard for me, um, for, for other reasons. And, you know, just in general, I don't think any child wants to tell their, their parent that they've been harmed because parents feel like they have to keep their kids safe. But for me, I felt like I was forced to tell my parents because of, you know, what happened with that person that I had, um, anonymously told my story about him going and putting my name out there. I was like, my parents are going to find out, like, I have to address this. And it was so scary. Um, and they were great about it. Um, which I'm, I'm very happy and I feel very blessed to have parents that are so supportive because I know that's not the case for a lot of people, but it's been just so uplifting to be able to talk about it and to know that maybe the echo of my voice could help other people come to terms with what happened to them because of this kind of black and white narrative we have about assault. Um, Because like you said, what we see in the media, it's always these very graphic um, crimes happening. So those other instances where consent's not given, but you're not physically like, or sorry, again, visibly looking like you're hurt. We don't talk about that side of assault. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it's so true. And I, I just remember with my parents, and this is something actually I speak to a lot of family members and parents about, like a lot of parents whose children have gone through this reach out to me mm-hmm. to speak to me about this stuff. And, you know, I just remember my dad, this is one, one reason I was, I on the night had no choice whether my parents were called, I was a child, but I didn't want them to know, not out of fear of me getting in trouble, but I was, didn't want them to know because I knew what my dad's response would be. And it was exactly that. He's like, I'm going to kill him, yeah. you know, yeah. that aggression and anger. And I always held on to that as a bit of a traumatic thing because in that moment I felt so unloved and so alone that both of my parents' reactions were were grief and anger and not one of their reactions was empathy and love towards me. And I know yeah. that they love me. I know that. But when you hear this, you know, we need to talk about the reactions that we have with survivors too. And it's important to first first and foremost, put them in front of you and let them know that Mm -hmm. they're okay. Um, Instead of having this outbursty type reaction, which, I mean, we can't always help, but we can talk about it and try and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, Similarly, um, you know, my, I talked to my mom first, I called her and I told her about it. And then afterwards I was like, I don't want to talk to my parents anymore. I just don't want to have this discussion. And this was in part due because years prior when I, you know, had called 911, I didn't tell my parents for a few months. Yeah. And I, you know, I remember sitting them down and telling them and they felt so much responsibility and all this guilt because they, you know, they're like, well, why can't you talk to me? And part of that is just because of the way I grew up. Um, you know, almost like you said, having to be self-sufficient, we talked at the very beginning. Um, but I always, you know, I just did what was expected of me. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't want 
to tell them that something bad happened because I felt like anytime they, you know, it, they shouldn't have to deal with it. And seeing that reaction after telling them about me being hospitalized, um, they, and this was a continued narrative until pretty recent because, you know, we had lots of conversations about it, but I was like, you know, and not to be offensive, but this isn't about you. Like, it's okay that you feel like you weren't there for me, but I'm telling you, this isn't about, you know, I've always known that my parents love me. I feel the same way. Um, but to see how horrible they felt and this guilt, and then for them to say, well, I don't know why you don't talk to us. And I remember having a conversation in the summer with my parents, um, after telling, not telling them about a relationship I was in, they're like, we just wish you'd talk to us more. And I just, I grew up not wanting to share those details of my life. Um, but yeah, when I recently told my parents and well, I told my mom, my mom told my dad, um, my mom came over to my apartment a couple days after. And she said, um, said to me, yeah, your dad said, well, really hard to enjoy retirement from jail. And I just kind of like, I was like, I'm not having this conversation. I just shut it down completely. I was like, no, like I get it, but no, that's not what I need right now. And that reaction does not serve my healing. So respectfully keep it to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I had that, um, you know, a similar thing the other week where my mom brought up to me that there were people that were out there in our community that were actively saying that I was a liar and that I was a bitch. Um, and she had told me that and I was like, okay, I don't need to know that. Um, I already know it anyway, but it's not serving my healing. That's exactly right. And you know, there are so many people in in my life consistently who hear these things and will tell me about them, but they also won't speak up about them in a room. And I think this is where the advocacy needs to change. Even if you're not sitting there screaming at somebody, right? You don't need to react like that, but at least calling it out and being like, that's really inappropriate. Yeah. That isn't appropriate. There's not an appropriate way to speak about somebody um, or something like that. You know, Um, I think it's called neutrality. Um, being neutral in situations where we know that being silent and neutral in situations always serves the side of the perpetrator and not the person who's being oppressed. So um, those are things we've been navigating and talking about. And, you know, I, like you just said, I love my family. I love my parents, but that was a, you know, thing, a common theme in our discussions was why do you feel like this? Why, what have I done to make you feel like this as opposed to what's going on? Let's talk about it. And I think, you know, when you feel guilty and you feel shame, you don't need to be explaining, you know, trying to minimize the thing that they've, you're not angry at them. You know, you don't need to console them. Yeah. You end up consoling them. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And it's not always parents. It's, it's friends as well. I think, you know, people in your life that care about you, if you're not reacting in a certain way, they might not reach out for so many different reasons, but also Mm -hmm. I think a lot of survivors or, you know, we're, we're not telling people what's going on because we don't want to have to micromanage their reactions. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that's so important to talk about. Um, I, for allies to be good allies, you need to remove your ego and focus on the survivor. You know, we always say center the survivor, but I don't think we actually talk about how you manage your own reactions to when someone tells you their story, especially if you're 
a person that has a particular relationship, like a parent or a really close friend. Um, I even remember like, and this is kind of just like a different scenario. And I've always been a very blunt and um, intense person. My my therapist literally told me to say intense because I called myself dramatic for years. (laughs) So um, I would have such intense reactions to things. And when I was younger, I had, I would find out things after the fact for my friends about, you know, whatever their relationships, it, it didn't matter what it was. And I was like, well, why aren't you telling me? And I was having this egocentric response. And I think, you know, that for myself and my own mental health journey, I kind of came to a place where I was like, I need to really actively think about how my ego is present when I'm talking with other people. I think that's something that everyone should practice, especially as allies to survivors of sexual assault, because yeah, like parents have these really intense, re- and it's okay to have those reactions, but you have to be aware of it, especially when someone is trusting in you and they're coming to you for help and support. Yeah, definitely. And I know I, you know, I've spoken to a couple of my friends along the years, especially in the early days and about what I'd gone through. And one of them said to me, would it be okay for me to talk to my parents about this? And I was like, yeah, 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 that's fine. But it wasn't in a sense that, you know, it was like telling her parents to dob on me or something. What she needed was an outlet for her to discuss how she felt about what I was going through. She Mm -hmm. knew very quickly that she couldn't relay those thoughts and feelings to me. So what she tried to do was create an ecosystem around her that she could have support. And when I had opened up and told other people, like I got a boyfriend and things like that, she would actively seek them out and speak to them about, you know, how they felt, um, you know, because these are those things, right, where somebody's going through something traumatic, somebody's got something going on in their lives, you just need to be there for them. That doesn't mean you can't have a reaction to it. That doesn't mean that you can't be struggling with what they're telling you. This doesn't mean that it doesn't make you feel insecure that they're not telling you these things. But they're probably not the person to talk about it at this stage. They're probably the one that you need to just focus on supporting and then take that step back and speak to somebody that you know, love and trust that you know you can trust with the information that you're speaking about, whether it be a psychologist, a crisis line, a friend, a family member, um, I don't know, a colleague, somebody like that that's maybe removed from the situation that you yourself as the person being disclosed to can get it off your chest because that's important too. Listening yeah. to stuff, especially about somebody that you love, is fucking traumatic. It's awful. Yeah, and... I I can think back to that initial assault years ago and telling certain people about what happened. And because I recently looked at those text messages and I was looking as a way to kind of um, justify my story because this person went and posted screenshots where I was clearly fawning. Um, And my, my two best friends, there was these messages to them and when I told them about it, how I was blackout and I don't remember. And I was sick that night. They were like, that's not consent they knew and they were very respectful in giving me my time. And I I think they realized, especially just looking back, like what I was going through and that I wasn't ready to really talk about it. Mm -hmm. But there were other people, especially those people that I worked with um, in the service industry that were just like, Oh, well you did it. And it just kind of fed that narrative of myself that I was a home record, that I was a slut, like all these horrible things So it's really interesting to see, like when you tell some people 
about an experience, even if you don't call it assault, you say, you know, I had this experience and I don't remember it. Like, it's kind of like you're reaching out, but you don't know how to do it. And I think being able to recognize that as an ally or the person receiving that information, that that's not consent, like how you go about it can really affect how a person is healing and come to terms with their trauma. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really interesting point as well that you just made, because this is something I was discussing the other day, which is, it's not, I had somebody say, it's not sexual assault, it's just regret. And, you know, I think there are so many people that say that. And yes, there are people who have sex and who regret it. That's one point. Mm -hmm. Of course there are. But did that person who went through this, maybe they are having feelings of regret for themselves, putting themselves in this situation. Did they come to consent freely Mm -hmm. of their own choice? Did they have to, were they coerced? Were they manipulated? Were they intoxicated? These are all things Right. And we package it up as somebody just being regretful of a situation, whereas in fact, it's really not. It's, it actually was a non consensual act. And these are things that people can go to jail for. So it's important to have that kind of discussion and remove it from, you know, regret. Regret does happen, you know, and, and something I've seen recently going around is that only 2% of sexual assault allegations are false. And I kind of wanted to look into that um, as an interesting area. What constitutes the number of what we consider to be a false report? Now, this statistic can be made up of so many different things. It can be made up of people who withdraw sexual assault allegations. That doesn't mean that they're false. It can be people who have put forward allegations and they have not gone through. That does not mean that they're false allegations. Somebody can be... Um, having difficulty recounting events and information and the police have pigeonholed them as somebody who's making a false report when they're not. So the number of false reports actually is minuscule. More often than not, especially when the victim survivor is a young woman, they can be not believed. And there's this TV series I employ everybody to watch. I think it's called Unbelievable. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I think it's called Unbelievable and basically it goes through this entire thing um, and she ends up getting charged with making a false report and actually fully charged with that when it wasn't, it was actually fact. And it's interesting, you know, that these statistics and people still have it in their mind that it's just regret and 2% is still a large number and things like that when these are actually not facts. These aren't true. You know, thinking about the way that crime statistics are done is very complex. They're fed in from um, police officer agencies. They're fed in from self-reporting surveys. There's no actual number. But to say 2% and not understand that what constitutes a false report might not be an actual false report. It might be not enough evidence and it might be a survivor going, I can't fucking do this. I'm withdrawing my report is worth knowing as well. So think twice about saying, is it just regret? It's not just regret. If you have not come to the decision of having sex with somebody of your own free will. Oh my God. Listening to that. I was just like bursting. I was like, Oh, I need to chime in. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, it's really interesting to see like people don't think that that's victim blaming and victim blaming is taking away from the survivor. And I, you know, because we've seen here locally, so many people, um, you know, people have been losing their jobs because of allegations and rightfully so. It's been very interesting when um, we've seen this in the media, how people are losing their jobs because of allegations of sexual assault. And 
the first thing I see in a lot of these comment threads are, well, do you know how many assaults are fake? Like, and I can't stand it. I'll reply to, and I know I shouldn't engage with some of these people because they're so embedded in their narrative, but I'm hoping that one person will see it be like, I didn't think of it that way. And, you know, saying, yeah, sure. It's 2%, but that's a reported. How many are actually reported? Because when you look at these, um, you know, surveys that are people that haven't gone to the police when they're, they take the number out of police investigated, um, reports. So the number is so small. Like we're talking 0.0 something of like, it's ridiculous to me that people try to use that. Um, and they come around being like, well, what if this is fake? Like, and I, (laughs) to me, it's like, why not just believe a survivor? I would rather believe someone who's possibly lying than support someone who is a a rapist. I will take that chance, like do any probability and the survivor is correct. Right. And I'd rather be wrong about somebody who's making that up than be wrong about somebody who did it. And that's so true. Um, But I think as well, one thing that we need to be cognizant of is where data and statistics are coming from. Each and every person in and of themselves has access to a phone, has Mm -hmm. access to different types of statistics and things like that. And one simple word in a report can mean, in a statistic, can mean something very different. So it could be one in 16 women are sexually assaulted. Now that might be one in 16 report sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. That could be a very different number. But also where is this data coming from? Is this data coming from the police in terms of a number of things that have been reported to the police that they have taken action on because there's a number that they don't take action on as well, which isn't numbered. But is this information fed from individual um, double-blinded surveys? Are these people not identifying and adding into information into surveys? Um, is this information coming from XYZ? These are different things and, you know, it's interesting to me sometimes I've seen these things and that's where that 2% thing really annoys me because it is not a fact that 2% of all cases are people who have made it up because the the category of making it up in inverted commas might be simply somebody removing their allegation away so that they don't have to go through a court process. And that's important to say that's not a false allegation. That's somebody withdrawing yes. an allegation. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I, I've seen, you know, recently, especially on social media, people that seem to really want to say, well, you're ruining a man's life. You know, this should be investigated. Like not everyone can go to the police. Like that's a whole other conversation. I could talk for hours about why people don't report. You know, there's a reason I didn't report because I knew that I would be grilled about it. And I was, I was blackout. What am I supposed to tell you? I was throwing up. That's it. And they're going to paint the story of me. Um, and I know that's not going to serve my healing. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why people don't report and that affects those numbers. And there's been this one particular source that, um, these, uh, I guess devil's advocates, um, have been using and it's, it's not a like a valid site. It's like I think the URL is like something like uh, false allegations. Like it, oh my god! And it's I've seen the same thing used every time. Like you went out and you searched 
for false allegations and you pick the one thing that looks like it justifies your argument, but you're not questioning this data. You're not actually looking where it's from because on that, there were these people saying, well, it's like 40%. It's like, where did you get that number? Like you're so narrow-minded that you think that that's valid. Like you need to look at the big picture here. So yeah, I, I think it's important to question these things and really understand where you're getting your sources from too, because sometimes people believe that, you know, even just by saying it's two, 2% or false, like, well, what makes up that number? Yeah. And that's exactly right. And I think, you know, we, we have a job to do almost as advocates to make sure that we're feeding a narrative that is actually correct and that we are talking about different nuance to detail. Um, but also that we're supportive Mm -hmm. and I'm so sick of these specifically men most of the time having a quiet, um, you know, I, there was an article that came out the other day and my blood boiled and I just thought to myself, I'm, I'm letting this affect me this much. I need to respond to this in an eloquent way, which was still not very eloquent, but it, I was so mad that somebody had done an entire article on how 2021 hasn't been a very fun year for the men of Australia. And I was so infuriated because this article came out last week was one of the most horrific weeks in, in Australian history. Um, A young baby girl, um, Kobe was murdered by her father. He jumped off a bridge with her attached to him. Um, in the same week, a woman was murdered by her partner in a murder-suicide. And in the same week, another woman was murdered by her former partner when he lit her on fire in their backyard when her kids were in the house. This was in one week. And all of us are speaking about rates of domestic abuse, rates of sexual abuse, the gender inequality that we speak about. And the fact that somebody can write a big article on how 2021 hasn't been a very fun year for men, well... Maybe if you turned around and asked those people how they thought their year was going, oh, sorry, you can't, they're dead. You know, it's, Mm. and I don't say that lightly and I don't mean to make it sound like a joke. It's not, but it is sarcasm that has to kind of come through and go, you're fucking so out of touch with reality right now that you need to sit the fuck down because I'm not here to listen to how hard it's been for you that people are calling out abuse for the first time ever. You know, it's not mm-hmm. hard for you. It's hard for us. Sit the fuck down. And that's what I want. Sit the fuck down. <laughs> it needs to be on a t-shirt. Yeah. I, um, so recently we, there was this politician who came out and said that they didn't believe there was rape culture, um, here in Victoria. And, oh, <sighs> you know, I, so I started a support group here locally a couple months ago with some people for survivors after seeing all these allegations come out. So, you know, my first thought, I was like, I need to tell, like, people need to see this. So a whole bunch of us were writing in, um, expressing our concerns about this comment. And then eventually this person took back their comments saying that it was clumsy and that they were going to seek education. And I was like, hold up, that's not clumsy. That's ignorant. And their response was, well, I'm also a survivor. Um, so is that, I'm sorry. No, like just because you're a survivor does not mean that like, that doesn't excuse what you said. Like this person's a, a white male and you know, it's like, you need to remove your privilege. Like how you've been looking at society to say there's not a rape culture when women are walking around with their keys between their fingers, texting their friends when they get home. Like 
you you don't walk around with fear every time you leave the house. Yeah, um, that's exactly and this right. Person, the subsequent conversations with them, um, you know, they're just like, well, I'm, I'm getting, there was this one quote, he said, I'm getting more education on this hour by hour. I was like, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't accept that. You need to do better than that. You can't be so ignorant when you've lived in a society this long that has clearly benefited you, that you have privileged off of, that you have thrived off of women being mistreated and say that you don't believe in that because, and especially as a person in power, um, you know, that feeds into other people's narratives and that coming from someone who has power that like, you know, people are going to take that as truth, even if it isn't. So honestly, so this actually happened. uh, It's happened a lot in in Australia of recent. Um, The women of Australia are not having a particularly fun year. Thank you to that cunt in the article. Sorry, I swear a lot. But this, Mm -hmm. when when all of the women's safety riots were happening, not riots, um, marches were happening, when we were talking about um, in the wake of the murder of Sarah Everard um, and the worldwide marches that were happening for women's safety, Our prime minister turned around and said there are women who are being shot um, in other places of the world for doing this behavior. And it was like, are you serious? Like he literally kind of said, you know, we're, we're just be thankful that we're not shooting you. And it was like, are you serious? And he has said this from this moment that he had become prime minister. He has an empathy coach. He actually needs to be trained on having empathy and you turn around and you go, like, I think it's $200,000 a year that the government spends on this person's empathy coach, who's clearly not doing a very good job because comparing the fact that other people are being shot for protesting, which, by the way, I don't actually think happened. I didn't hear of any women in marches being shot that were at the women's safety marches mm-hmm. specifically. He's making shit up to fear monger and to make us feel like we actually are privileged by the fact that he allowed us, he didn't shoot us for protesting. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, these comments that were coming out that you see from people living someone's life, it's like, well, what what about the person that was assaulted? How do you think their life has changed? You know, like, why are you centering this other person? And yeah, for people to say, well, any kind of victim blaming and to take away from me, like, you should be lucky that only this happened, you know, downplaying and validating someone's story. It, it infuriates me so much. And I think that's why, especially for myself, as someone that's always been very outspoken, when I see comments like that, I can't help but engage. Um, And I have to be very aware to not engage with some people because you can see that they're not willing to see your side, but it's very interesting to see how, um, particularly privileged white men feel like they are being harmed by women coming out with their stories, how they think, well, you know, now I'm scared to have sex or that like, it's going to ruin the mood to ask. I just, I'm, I have none of it. having none of it. What's that um, activist name? Jane somebody. And she's, she's done a lot about um, activism for equal rights for people of color. And she mm-hmm. did this part like in the sixties or something where she said, everybody stand up if you would like to be treated as your black counterpart. 
and nobody stood up. And she kind of just raised this point and goes, none of you standing up, that means you're aware that there's a problem and you're not doing anything about it. Because yep. not one of you is standing up being like, yep, I'm happy to come and have this conversation to be here. I'm happy to put myself in your shoes because you're not. And I think that's the other point. The men of Australia or the men of Victoria, the men of of all these white men who have this privilege, right, they, I believe, are feeling attacked because all of a sudden they now are having a taste of what it is to have to think about your actions and having consequences. If we were to ask them, would you be happy to put yourself in a woman of Australia and a woman of Canada's shoes, would you be comfortable with swapping shoes with me for 10 years? I don't Mm -hmm. think that the answer would be yes because they recognise how much privilege that they have in life and in society. And it's a really good thing to kind of look at it and go, why actually are you feeling as though you are being attacked by male violence being called out, by domestic abuse, by sexual abuse. When we're calling it out, why do you think that it is making you feel attacked? Why aren't you enraged that this is happening to women and saying, I can't believe it, and standing up and going like as an advocate for women? Why are you feeling as though this is something against you? Yeah, I think with so many injustices to see the people that are privileged to turn around. And I I think it's also like you think of feminism, too. um, And you think of how, oh, I'm going to go on a whole rant here. But like, (laughs) think of how it's centered to around white women. And, you know, if feminism is not intersectional, we don't want it. Like, that's not appropriate. Like, Feminism at its core, it's about equality. It's not about hating men. It's, you know, I, I organized a rally not too long ago and someone said, well, um, there was a comment saying, oh, I hope this is going to be led by people of color. Or they're going to be consulted. Right. And then someone else said, well, why do we have to make it about race? I'm like, we have to address that there are different populations that are disproportionately affected by these things. And we have like, to also acknowledge want, our own privilege as white women. Yeah, you you have to be aware of that. And if you want equality, that means you want equality for everyone. So it's really interesting to see, yeah, particularly like with white men, um, to turn around and feel like women asking for safety, literally to be safe, <laughs> hurts them. Like yeah. we are just asking for you to check in. We are asking you to be aware of how it feels to have a man walk behind you at night and you're by yourself. Like you have no idea what that feels like. You need to be aware. It's not enough to just sit there and, you know, not be someone attacking someone else. You have to actively fight against the narrative that allows for this imbalance in power and for men to just walk around like, they own the world. Yeah. I actually had a message from a guy that I know he's a, um, he's an AFL footballer, which is a, um, it's like, you know, football, um, but it's Australian rules. Um, and he's quite well known, you know, if he walked down the street, people would know him. Um, and he messaged me and he said, you know, I was just walking down the street and, um, I was behind this girl and I'm aware like he's a big fit guy. He'd probably be six, one, six, two, quite stocky. Um, and he had his hood on and he's like, I was very aware in that moment 
once I had kind of left the situation, how frightened she must have been of me. But he didn't just say, you know, poor me, whatever. He's not asking for praise. I would never name him because he isn't asking me for notoriety. He's genuinely asking me. And he said, in that situation, what what can I do to make women feel more safe? And I was like, it's such a good question. And I was like, I don't have the answer to that. I think the answer is societal to get us to a level of equality. But I was just like, you know, for example, if you were to cross the road instead of me or give me more space or announce yourself and say that you're passing, um, because I would rather you be in front of me than behind me. So if you were just to go passing on your, mm-hmm. on your ride, I'm passing you, make some noise, make me, you know, and pass yeah. me, give me a wide berth, give me some space and yeah. walk around me. Um, that's fine. But obviously him just trying to hide and walking with a hood on is not making this situation better. But I thought that was a really great, wonderful thing to have, um, you know, somebody practically asking and not feeling attacked. I don't think he, as a man, as a very manly man, feels attacked by these things. He's genuinely seeking out and asking ways that he can be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you <laughs> you see that whole, and I hate even saying it because I don't want to bring attention to it, but the whole men too thing, like, <laughs> uh-uh, no. Um it's just, it's not enough to just be ignorant and just not be someone who's aggressive or actively hurting other people because you're actively hurting people by not speaking out. You know, there was a friend of mine who wrote this really excellent piece and spoke it at a rally about how men have this responsibility to support survivors and particularly women and how they can, you know, essentially, like I briefly said, like remove their ego from it and realize that it's, it's not us hating men. It's about wanting to feel safe and wanting equality. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I think, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's not, we're not, it, we know that it's not everybody, but you need to understand that when you're in a situation of fear, um, you don't know that, you know, the same thing as you can't spot a sex predator. You don't know what they look Mm -hmm. like. They don't have a a sign on their head. Um, That way, you know, we constantly are living in a state of fear because there is a chance that we're going to be harassed, assaulted, hurt, abducted, anything. And it's important to acknowledge that, that that's the way that it it is an actively work towards fixing it. Um, but you're right. It, this is a male problem as well. And we want to see more men. Um, but it's been so wonderful having you on. I honestly could talk to you for hours. Um, yeah, I know. I, it's literally getting dark here. Yeah, yeah. I hope to um, have you on again soon. But if you, um, as a final question, um, so if you were to give one piece of advice to yourself as a survivor um, or to a young person or somebody who's just recently gone through something recently, what would it be? I think you need to be, you know, oh man, how do I put this? Trying to like tell myself back when I felt so much pain. I think you need to be patient with yourself. Um, you need to give yourself some space to recognize what happened and to heal. And it's, it's never your fault. And I think a lot of survivors, they try to, you know, whether it's subconsciously or not, like they take the blame on themselves because it's easier to under, like to put the situation as if it was something they could control. 
So if they tell themselves that they, you know, consented or it was their fault, then they're minimizing the harm that was actually done. So I think just be patient with yourself um, and understand that just because something bad happened to you, it doesn't, it doesn't make you a bad person. It wasn't your fault. Um, Oh God, (laughs) I just, yeah, I think be patient. Healing takes time. You go through so many different stages. It's not linear and don't beat yourself up about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, have some compassion and patience for yourself. That's exactly, mm-hmm. you know, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, if they want to go and repost your things on socials, where can they go? Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram. It's Alex Letha. Um, I'll give you the spelling because it's a little <laughs> weird. Um <laughs> And then I also started, uh, like I said, a support group here locally. It's meant for this region, but we do have an Instagram. It's survivors support. So survivors plural. So there's two S's in the middle there. Um, And we are going to be keeping everyone updated on the local advocacy we're doing. And we're really excited about some projects we have about spreading awareness and education around consents, particularly for the restaurant industry, as well as looking at the education system and how we can increase awareness so that it's not so taboo to talk about and everyone projects we have coming up. And so we're going to be posting a lot of updates on survivor support. And we also just hope to post um, educational um, and resourceful pieces for people. Um, so yeah, you can find me on both those accounts. We also have well, a website, survivors support, Victoria, uh, CA, and we'll be posting there too, hopefully starting a blog soon as well. That's amazing. So I will link all of those into the show notes for this episode, along with some local services and Canadian resources so that you can access those if you're listening to this from Canada. But for now, thank you for listening. This is Reclaim Me signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.